You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Hulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Welcome to you both today. Really excited about today's topic, Greek and using the Greek language against the Greeks. The Hebrew Bible itself is such a masterful work. And then to imagine the amount of work that went into translating it into the Septuagint, into such a beautiful text, there was clearly an important reason why they wanted to translate this impressive work of literature into Greek. Can you explain the importance of Greek, why translating the Bible into Greek was so important, why they decided to put so many resources into doing it, why it was such an important point to make in order to further the ideas of the Bible? Let me begin with my thesis, and I'll try to defend it. I touched upon it in previous podcasts, and it's clarified in my book. All these legends then came up about the translation and so on and so forth reflect the importance of the translation. One should be more serious and stick with the actuality of the matter. One more time, per word count... The Old Testament is much larger, twice as large as the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. That is really impressive. I mean, you need serious people at school to work on that. Now, the other thing, by the admission of most people who are serious in their study of the Old Testament, no translation matches the Septuagint in its closeness to the original. That extremely impressive. So the conclusion of my work is that it is the authors of the Hebrew that translated the text into Greek. Probably, perhaps, as I shall try to explain, it was concomitant. Why? Because, again, my conviction is that originally they wanted to write it in Greek. You cannot attack forcefully, frontally, someone without having in mind to get through that someone the message. If that someone does not get the message, then you have not done anything. So the Greek was on the mind of the writers. And again, I defend that by saying that these were learned people. And after Alexander imposed practically the Greek all over the place, you get to learn it the way the people in Jordan, you know, speak English as well as Arabic and the people in Lebanon speak French as well as Arabic. You know, you grow up with that and you get to know it. So what I'm proposing, actually, it's my conviction that in order to precisely belittle the opponent, and I stress this so much all over the place, they force the opponent to remember that what they are reading in Greek is a translation of this concocted Semitic barbarian language. That is already a slap in the face of the opponent. Now, obviously, their colleagues had also to learn the Hebrew of the Bible because I said it's concocted. So you have to make the effort to figure out the meaning of words from the text itself. In conjunction with that, I would like to jump to a text which is, you know, everybody has to read it once a day. In the famous prologue or preamble 
to the wisdom of Sirach, which is written in Greek. I'm convinced that it was never written in Hebrew and translated. It was written in Greek. But be it as it may, it doesn't matter. We have this additional prologue in which the translator is saying openly that he is translating the work of his grandfather. And what he says is the following. You are urged, therefore, to read with goodwill and attention, and this is in Greek, and to be indulgent in cases where, despite our diligent labor in translating, we may seem to have rendered some phrases imperfectly. I mean, this is amazing for someone to make this statement. Usually when you have a translation, you try in the intro to say that it is almost as perfect as the original and people can read in a sense. You don't talk like that. Then the author adds, for what was originally expressed in Hebrew, Evraisti, and we have here the first use of Evraisti as a language, does not have exactly the same sense when translated into another language. All my students over 45 years remember me having said that at least 10 times every semester. Not only this work, but even the law itself, which is essential for him because one has to live according to the law. So you have to understand the words. Let me take an aside. We know how in this country, when you go to a lawyer, after the lawyer has read to you the document which you are about to sign, before you sign, the lawyer says to you, let me explain to you in plain English what you are signing. Because once you sign, you don't sign your understanding of the document. You're supposed to have understood what was written in the document. Not only this work, but even the law itself, the prophecies and the rest of the books differ not a little as originally expressed. Notice the terminology. So he's trying to tell you it is very close, the closest a human being can get, but it is never the original text, which tells me that it's an invitation for a serious student of the Bible to go to the original. I mean, people say that it started with Erasmus and so on. No, no, people got that message. Even the two giants, Origen and Jerome, understood that, and they learned Hebrew. Now, to which extent Origen used the Hebrew, I don't think he just fooled everybody by saying that he knew Hebrew, but he didn't use it effectively in his work and in his studies. But if one is serious, then one has to do the jump and be forced. Remember how Martin Luther went to rabbis to learn Hebrew in order to understand whether he did or not does not matter. Matter. What matters is that the message of the writer of the prologue of Sirach went through and people got it. This is what happened in the third century. Now, this corresponds to the interesting story about the miraculous translation of the Hebrew into Greek by 70 people who came up with the same translation in Egypt and so on, which was in the middle of the third century, precisely the date of the production of the Hebrew. So, they were produced together, and as a footnote, it's interesting how this legend corresponds to what we read in the prologue of Sirach. Remember that legend said that uh, Ptolemy, ruler, 
to enhance the library of Alexandria and to have word literature and blah, blah, blah. You know, he asked the people to translate it. Now, in the prologue of Sirach, we read, and I'm continuing the prologue at the point at which I stopped. Books differ not a little as originally expressed. When I came to Egypt in the 38th year of the reign of Evergetes and stayed for some time, I found opportunity and so on. So it's interesting that the prologue and the legend in the book of Aristeas refer to Egypt as the place where this was done. And the reason is that Alexandria was practically the literary capital of that world, and it remains for some time. Even during the Roman Empire, we know the influence of the Alexandrian school on the ecumenical councils and so on and so forth. So this is what I'm proposing as an intelligent solution of what we are dealing with. And I would invite the hearers to make the effort to read my commentaries on the Old Testament, where whenever I have the opportunity, I show how the Septuagint is the closest compared to any later translation, but at the same time show its shortcomings in a way that it is always an invitation for you to consult the original. A classic example quickly is found in Psalm 1, where the Septuagint, I learned not to ever say unfortunately about the Septuagint, because I think it's a very intelligent translation and purposely done so. But already it plants the seed that was picked up in the other translations about the man who is blessed in the first psalm, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, meditates, it's who thinks, who cogitates already in the Septuagint, but this is a trap, because people immediately imagine that they can meditate and think about it and so on. Well, in the original, if you want to understand what the Septuagint meant by meditate, is Hagar, which is the spelling in Arabic, everybody knows. Tahajja means to say the words, as you would say, blood, B-L-O-O-D. And that is extremely impressive because it means that you have to be saying the words in the original. In other words, you have to know by heart scripture and repeat it to yourself. It's like a monk or a nun or a parishioner who recites a psalm by heart. Imagine you're saying it in Hebrew. Whenever you are saying it, you are hearing it in the original, even if you don't understand it. Let's say I teach you to read English and you're reading at the seminary. You get to a point where you can read a word, but you don't understand its meaning. It's not the end of the word. The people will have heard it. And then you or someone would ask you, what is the meaning? of the word wave. So this example, I mean, I appeal to it because it's really impressive, is right there. It's the original verb. And thus, someone who repeats aloud the law. Now, a Muslim will have no problem to understand that because this is what a Muslim does. <laughs> but then the Muslim does it in the language of the Quran, which is Arabic. To say it in translation is fine, but still the original is there. Now, it's an impressive piece of work, but I hope I was able at least 
to share with my hearers my take regarding the interconnection between the Hebrew original and the Septuagint, if I may say original. I'm hoping that the authors could not say, ah, Father Paul endorses the stand of the Orthodox Church, that the Septuagint is inspired and it's really as important, if not more important than... That's not what I'm saying. I'm following the prologue of Sirach. It's an invitation. Before ending, let me give a couple of examples. And you know me, I teach through examples. They are just very direct and clear. Let's say someone reads Shakespeare in a translation and that that person gets so excited that the decision is taken to learn English in order to do that. This is what people do. They would read, for instance, a French author in Spanish, and then the excitement comes about, and that person decides to go to the university and study French literature. It happens. It happens. But we all know the difference of level between that person and someone else who is still reading in translation. So the Septuagint, if you like, is a trap to those Greeks filled with their ego. You think Greek is the language? Okay, there you have it in Greek. We did it for you. Just keep reading. But imagine a knowledgeable, intelligent Greek who gets to a point, and in my book I refer to that. Keep in mind my discussion of the ending of Genesis chapter 4, where somehow the Septuagint is really funny. How would one solve it? An intelligent and honest person would say, You know, my friend, how are we going to get to the end of that? And that person would make the effort to check with the original. That's what people do. We do it all the time. Like myself, I read the Bible. I used to do it in French or Arabic. Now I do it in English. It's not that at every sentence I go back to the Hebrew. I just read. Whenever it gets a little bit tricky or touchy, then obviously I have to work on the Greek if I'm studying the New Testament. When I was a kid and I played basketball, I had a coach who took some time to speak with professional players. And he asked them, you guys are the pros. What do you do at practice? And what they told him, I remember it surprised him and he shared it with us. They just kept working on fundamentals. They practiced free throws. They did jump shots. They did layups. And then, of course, they reviewed their plays, but mostly they kept working on fundamentals. And I think one of the reasons we're asking you to keep coming back to talk about this subject is because it really is foundational and fundamental to your thesis, but to the school in general. So I really appreciate you taking the time to delve in. Again, I know for you, it's elementary, but we just need to hear it. So thank you. Well, thank you, Father Mark. And please keep this in mind since these are podcasts. And I'm retired now. I have all the time in the world. (laughs) So if something is worth revisiting or pushing further in asking for specific examples the way I gave you on Salman, please do so. But thank you for your comment. I think it's both valuable and of the essence. In Alexandria, they were famous at this time for analyzing the texts of the Odyssey and the Iliad. I find it really fascinating that then this even more humongous text was placed in front of them, the Septuagint, for them to analyze, for them to look at, for them to try to understand, for them to wrestle with. For our hearers, I mean, one should mention here the example of the Tetrapla and Exapla of origin. We had the Hebrew text transliterated in the second 
colon into Greek transliteration. Then the Greek, and if I may, Richard, I mean, just for our hearers to realize, for instance, one of the Greek translations understood the importance of the original and translated the particle et in Hebrew, which has no value except to point to you that the following is the direct complement of the verb. And they translated, we have text, people have to be aware of that. Purposely, this person decided to say, in the beginning, God created with the heavens and the earth. Because this et in Hebrew can sometimes mean with. He wrote sin in Greek. It's just an aside for our hearers. It's my comment on your input for the sake of the hearers to understand that what I'm saying is not just a figment of my imagination. That's what people did. Thank you, Father, for reminding me of that point, because the effort that was placed in analyzing the Greek text was tremendous. But like you say, the tie with the Hebrew text was understood as something essential, not only origin in making sure that he had a transliterated Hebrew text in his hexapla so he could compare, but he was basing that on previous scholars who were trying to create a Greek text that was even closer to the Hebrew text to the point, like you say, of nonsense in Greek, adding a with when it makes sense in Hebrew and it makes no sense in Greek. Obviously, these early Greek scholars in Alexandria specifically were putting forth a huge amount of effort to really understand what the Septuagint was saying, but like you say, vis-a-vis -vis the Hebrew text, they understood that it couldn't be understood without a complete understanding of the Hebrew text. And I find it kind of sad how few Greeks we know by name who actually learned Hebrew so they could understand Hebrew instead of using these kind of shortcuts yeah, that other yeah, scholars I put together. Here I was blessed, literally blessed, to have gone to Romania to study theology. Romania and Greece, I believe until now, are... I say the only, the only Orthodox churches that are serious about the original languages, Hebrew is taught at the seminaries. And there is no elective. In Romania, every student took four semesters of Hebrew in the first and second year. Obligatory, required. <laughs> no discussion about it. Now, in Greece, we have the same thing. And that, for me, shows that in Orthodoxy, we have also this tradition, what I call of seriousness regarding the centrality. I mean, why would one who is so excited about the fathers and only the fathers and ultimately the fathers and so on would do Hebrew for semesters? Now, does everybody use it? I'm not saying that. But then everybody knows it in the sense that a graduate from Greece and Romania can follow more easily a serious commentary. And that, I believe, is very important. I mean, according to me, it's of the essence. So your point, Richard, is really well taken, but it has to be formulated and said again and again and again. I say that if, let's say, in a church... There is not at least one who knows Hebrew, then there is no scripture there. Let me share with you, if I'm allowed, 
Since I'm retired, I decided to go around here in my area and visit different churches and so on. And I went one evening to the Bible study in a very interesting, but we'll talk about another time, about St. Mary Missionary Baptist Church. That is unbelievable. Anyway, I went there and the pastor was following a book that was published by the central headquarters. And one of the parishioners was kind enough to hand it to me. I introduced myself to the pastor, and the pastor introduced me. So look what happened, and I would like it to be said here. The pastor was making all his effort to pronounce correctly koinonia, kinonia. So one of the parishioners said it correctly, and then they all turned to me. Can you imagine? He said, how is it pronounced? Because I introduced myself as a Greek Orthodox priest and professor of scripture. And then the parishioner beamed when I said, you are right, that's the waiter. Because that word was written in the English text. We're talking about missionary Baptists. So it's very important, I believe, that our people be aware, that everybody be aware of that. It's right there, at least if they can't pronounce it, it is written in their book, they recognize it, which is put in italics after the English word, fellowship or whatever. Again, examples. Now, obviously, the pressure is on my compatriots, the Arabs. They have absolutely no excuse to know Hebrew. I mean, they could do it in their dreams. It's so basic and easy. And that's a duty. Thanks very much, Father Paul. It's been a great session. Richard, as always, this is a thought-provoking and helpful extension of the podcast. Looking forward to next week's discussion. Take Thank care. Thank you very much, Fathers. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.